0: So uh, if you're first time here, we have um, these study guides available for you for related to what we started doing two weeks ago. We're in week three, and we're going to finish up in two more weeks, so five, five weeks to go through the whole Bible. So just raise your hand if you, if you need one of these, or if you've been here before and you've, you've lost it. Uh, actually, we found one that is filled out. Uh, it took great notes from, from the, the past couple of weeks, and it's in the office I was really encouraged that some people were actually listening and, and able to track with what we were talking about because it's, it's a challenge to try to bring all this together in a, in a way that you can hear and track with. So, today we're talking about the exile and prophets. Prophets had a tough job in Israel, it wasn't very profitable to be a prophet. And in case you missed that pun, I'm gonna get all the puns out of the way. There's one more. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, and I've worked for a nonprofit organization. Yeah. I may still have another pun somewhere in there, but that's probably as bad as it gets. The prophets spoke God's word to a people who largely rejected it. And that's never fun they sometimes have to act out the parts of their messages. Uh, Like Hosea having to marry a prostitute to demonstrate God's faithfulness to an unfaithful wife, Israel. Or like Ezekiel having to lay on his left side out in the public square for 390 days and his right side for 40 days, eating cakes made of wheat, barley, beans, lentils, mixed with dung. Yuck. Barley. <laughs> I mean, that's just so gross. And he was doing that as a sign for, uh, of the coming punishment of the Babylonian siege and exile. So they, they did a lot of that kind of thing. The prophet spoke much about judgment and the need for repentance, and that's typically what we think of when we Think of, about what a prophet does. And it's true. They did do that quite a bit. But they also spoke much about the fact that God was going to redeem his people, restore them to his place. So we're saying that the, the, the overarching theme of, of the Bible, or a way of stating how the Bible fits together, maybe better to put it this way, is God's people and God's place under God's rule and blessing. So they spoke much about the fact that God was going to redeem his people, restore them to his place, and his place on multi-levels, the land of promise and the city of Jerusalem, and um, with, in, a, in a land that would be much like a new Eden, under the rule of his Savior King, with the blessing that the nations have come to the Lord. They, they really were bad news, good news people, the prophets. You know, why did God send prophets to Israel to speak about judgment and hope? For the same reason that we need to hear that, because there is judgment for sin, and yet there's hope that God has provided a way of salvation from sin, and it's really that simple. So they're, they're, what, what they're doing is they're screaming out for the coming of the Messiah, and it's hard to hold back. From wanting to go there myself. Next week we get to talk about Jesus. We just get to pull out all the stops and talk about Jesus. This week we'll still be talking about what, what was the longing for Jesus. God's word warns and God's word blesses. His promises will never fail. And that's one thing to get from today because we're going to go through quite a bit. And a major message to get today is God's word never fails. It 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 brings judgment where that's deserved and it brings grace where that's not deserved last week we learned that God's plan of redemption for humanity was based on his covenant he made with Abraham he promised to give to Abraham's offspring the land of Canaan to make of him a great nation among the nations that through his offspring all nations on earth would be blessed his descendants Abraham's descendants became the nation of Israel the nation of Israel multiplied uh, after Abraham's grandson great-grandson Joseph died, they multiplied in Egypt. Egypt made slaves of Israel so God delivered them through Moses as God's redeemed people, he gave them rules to live by and rituals like the tabernacle, priests and sacrifices to picture their ongoing need for forgiveness and cleansing and how God provides it and how a holy God dwells with the sinful people. How does he do that? It's through priests, through sacrifices. It's through specific ways that he's approached. After they entered the promised land, due to their unfaithfulness, they went through cycles of sin, oppression, and then God would deliver them. They would sin, they would become oppressed, and God would deliver them over and over and over again. And the deliverers were called judges. They cried out for a king like the nations. God gave them when They got Saul. That was bad. God then raised up a king after his own heart. That was David. And God further focused his covenant relationship with Israel by making a covenant with David that his offspring would rule God's people forever. So the story so far is God's people, Israel, by covenant and redemption, in God's place, which is the land of Israel, centered in Jerusalem with temple, under God's rule, under the rule of His word, and King David's descendants and God's blessing. He blessed them, and they were supposed to bless the nations. Israel reached its most glorious days under King Solomon's reign. Under Solomon's son, Rehoboam's reign, the people asked Rehoboam, hey, can you lighten up? Can you, can you just go a little bit easier on us, and we'll be, we'll be happier? He wouldn't do it, and they rebelled, and the nation split into uh, 10 tribes to the north called Israel or sometimes Ephraim or sometimes Samaria and one tribe to the south tribe of Judah the northern tribes quickly began turning away from God worshipping other gods and acting like the nations and that brings us to our first point which if you're filling in blanks this is a good time to be ready to fill in a blank the northern kingdom is exiled to Assyria and if you successfully fill out your whole study guide the prize will be a dung-free Ezekiel cake. <laughs> so you got that. God sent the prophets Elijah and Elisha to call the northern people back to God. Elijah challenged to the prophets of the false god Baal. He challenged. Uh, he he uh, t- challenged him to a duel. Baal did nothing. God sent fire down and consumed everything—the sacrifice, the stones of the altar, the marshmallows, the graham crackers, the Hershey bars—everything. Then some uh, new prophets came on the scene. They were called writing prophets. They began writing down their prophecies, so as opposed to wrapping prophets, <laughs> such as Amos and Hosea. Um, they t- they try to call Israel back to God. And they said to Israel through Hosea, because you're so unfaithful, you are not my people and I'm not your God. It's like I'm taking back my covenant. Well, sort of. In spite of the ministry of the prophets, the people would not turn back to God. So in 722 BC, 200 years after Israel divided, the northern kingdom was defeated by Assyria and exiled. That must be... Syria calling right now (laughs) the prophets have warned that even though God would be faithful to his covenant with Abraham to bless his offspring yet the blessings of the covenant cannot be enjoyed by those who continue to break God's covenant the blessings of the covenant cannot be enjoyed by those who continue to break God's covenant he had warned them about the consequences it wasn't in the fine print it was very clear which leads to the next point, if you're filling in blanks. The southern kingdom is exiled to Babylon. The people of the southern kingdom of Judah continued under the rule of David's descendants. You would think that would give them better leadership, and they, they thought so too, but really most of those kings were pretty lousy as well. There was a, a few exceptions. Um, some attempts at reform were made, mostly through kings Hezekiah and Josiah, But the accumulated effect of unbelief and disobedience are too great to turn back the downward slide and avoid judgment. And in 597 BC, Jerusalem is captured by the Babylonians, and and Mitni and Judah are taken into Babylon. And later, the puppet king, uh, Zedekiah, rebels against Babylon, and retribution is swift and terrible. And in 586, Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, and more people are exiled to Babylon. Which brings us to our third point. They get expelled. Which is what we've been saying, but more particularly that God expels His people from the promised land for their unfaithfulness. Just like Adam and Eve got expelled from the garden. So people keep not being able to dwell with God because of their sin. So because God's people have rejected God's rule under God's word... They could no longer dwell in God's place. They couldn't dwell in the land of promise, not Israel. They couldn't dwell in uh, God's city of, of his king, Jerusalem. They couldn't dwell with God dwelling with them through the tabernacle and the temple. So, as such, they were certainly not mediating God's blessing to the nations. They were just not being a light to the nations. They were not being a kingdom of priests as God had called them to be, they were just following the corrupt and idolatrous practices of the nations. So in Second Chronicles thirty-six, we see how the, the historian wrote about what went on. All the officers of of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's Babylon. He gave them all into his hand to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, so again, God's word promised a son of David would rule God's people. God's word also said that God would judge kings and people who reject him. God performs both his promised blessings and his judgments as revealed in his word by the prophets. His word always succeeds. His word always does what he says he's going to do. Sooner or later, You may be familiar, this is not a verse on the screen, but in Isaiah's day, God said to the prophet Isaiah in 55, my word shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He also said to Jeremiah, I am watching over my word to perform it. So God's word is not a dormant word. God watches over his word and performs it, causes it to do what he sends it to do. the faithful of Judah wondered what had gone wrong with God's redemptive plan through his word. They complained in Psalm 89, you've renounced the covenant, you're, you're not faithful to, to, to David's descendants, what happened? And really we do that same thing, we wonder where is God's goodness that he promised, where, where is God in the mess that I'm in? And we have a choice, we can either trust God's word that he is going to do good and that sooner or later it's, it's the, the difficulty of waiting or we can reject him and suffer the consequences of, of not trusting in God. So, But they might have wondered, well, why doesn't God just avoid all this mess and just send Jesus right now? Send the Messiah right now? And we recognize from where we're at that God had a plan that was unfolding, his unfolding plan of redemption that wasn't his purpose he was taking his people through gradual phases of his unfolding plan of redemption. And that's painful, but it's good because it, it's God's plan to redeem a people for his, his namesake. As the prophets had warned of the judgment that God did bring upon his people, so they also spoke of the coming fulfillment of God's saving plan. So they were, the prophets had a lot to talk about in terms of hope. While people were in exile, they they continued to write about the hope of God's fulfilled blessings. So that brings us to uh, point four. God promises to preserve a remnant of his people from exile. Just as God had delivered Israel from captivity in Egypt in the first exodus, so would God deliver Israel in a second exodus, this time out of Babylon. But whereas in the first exodus, they came out a great multitude, a million-man march, the second exodus would be a relatively small number, yet God promised that he would again multiply them. So Jeremiah 23, I think, might have that scripture there. Um, Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Sounds like God's original commission to Adam and Eve, and, and then again to, um, to Abraham. So God continues to develop and to, to carry out his promise for his people. But this um, was only partially fulfilled in the return of, of the remnant from captivity. We're going to see this again and again and again, that God, um, the, what the promises f- uh, that the prophets were given uh, didn't quite make it after, the, um, after the, the second exodus. So, spoiler alert, quick fast forward to Jesus. Luke 9 rec- records that when Moses and Elijah appeared in glory with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, so Jesus takes his, um, his three favorite buds, James, Peter, and Paul, not Paul, James, Peter, and John, up to the, on, on the mountain, and he reveals his glory. And, and Moses and Elijah show up in glory. And they talk about Jesus' departure that he's about to accomplish from Jerusalem. So that word departure is exodus. So Jesus fulfills the exodus. He is the new Moses. Jesus is the new Moses that delivers God's people from sin's bondage. So back to where we're at in terms of the history that we're into. What's more, God promised that he would do his redemptive work in the very hearts of the people, as we saw in last week's um, message in Genesis 15, that God promised he would fulfill the conditions to bring the covenant to, to pass. God guaranteed that he would fulfill all its conditions. Here we see God providing what his people would need to be faithful to the covenant so they would not break it again. So in Jeremiah 24, 7, God says, I will give them a new heart. a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God and that's been kind of the tagline for our our study for they shall return to me with their whole heart or again in Jeremiah 31 the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of e- the land of Egypt my covenant that they broke though I was a husband declares the Lord for this is the covenant that I will make with them, to the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This was promised, and yet not fulfilled after the exile. But Jesus, just dropping this, this hint to where we're going, Jesus said when he was instituting the Lord's Supper on the, on the day of the Passover, before he went to the cross. He took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In fact, so great was this covenant upgrade, so influential was this, the early church understood this. And they called um, what, what we call still to this day, the first 39 books of the Bible, the Old Testament, which is the Old Covenant. Testament is another word for covenant. And we call the, the second 27 books of the, of the Bible the new covenant so the covenant upgrade is radical change in terms of god's dealing with his people fifth point god promises to restore israel to a restored land god promises to restore israel to a restored land jeremiah 32 god says i will gather them from all the countries to which i drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Gosh, how many times is he going to say that? Enough till we actually believe it. And he goes on in that passage. I don't have the rest of this up on the screen, but again, he promises the new heart, the uh, everlasting covenant. We'll plant them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Other, other passages talk about the, the land being uh, robust and fruitful and all the, all the life um, in harmony together, so it, it sounds like a new Eden. But not only does God promise to restore a remnant of Israel to a restored land, but the prophets speak of a new Jerusalem and a new temple. So in Isaiah 33, God says, Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast, Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation. Is Jerusalem yet an untroubled habitation? Not quite. It wasn't then. An immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up. It will never be destroyed. It's been destroyed several times since then. Nor will any of its cords be broken. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. So it will be disease-free the people who dwell there will be forgiven of their iniquity. That's not the case with Jerusalem today, so this is still yet to be fulfilled. In Zechariah 8, God says, I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. In Ezekiel 48, this is not on the screen, uh, the city is going to be called The Lord is There. And then there are scriptures that talk about the Messiah building the temple of the Lord. And so there's a new Jerusalem, a new temple coming. It's yet to be fulfilled. In Ezekiel 37, the big thing about all of this is God's going to be there. God's going to be dwelling with his people. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You should probably have that one memorized by now. I would hope so did the return from exile in 539 BC fulfill all of these glorious prophecies I don't think so as you read Ezra and Nehemiah and toward what summarizes the end and after the exile you see that the return and the temple was only a pale shadow of the glorious kingdom prophecies of a new land, a new Jerusalem, a new temple The sixth point is God promises to raise up a new king. So Israel's saying, where is the promised Messiah? Really, where is the Messiah? They're still looking for him today. Where is the Savior King of the line of David who will deliver us? So God spoke to through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9 to the people of Judah who were still not seeing much good come out of the king's God's going to bring in an everlasting king of the line of David, and He's going to establish peace. Has that happened yet? Didn't happen then. Um, we know that the king is on the premises, and He has come. But also, the Lord promised that um, uh, that this king would also be a suffering servant. So, there are several chapters in Isaiah that talk about him being a suffering servant. There's a constant theme also in God's word about how how God's people rejected uh, the deliverer that he sends to them. So Joseph, Moses, and David were all rejected and all suffered greatly. So there's there's this pattern of God's saviors being rejected and suffering and and not being exalted at first. In fact, in Zechariah 9, uh, God told Israel that your king is going to come to you on a donkey's colt. So which is it, prophets? Will the new David be a suffering servant or a mighty, glorious Savior King? And we know from our vantage point that Jesus is both, though his full kingship is yet to be revealed. The prophets struggled to understand this, and so we see in 1 Peter chapter 1 that they wrote about the sufferings and the glories of, of the Messiah. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So, they knew they were not writing for their own time. They knew they were writing for a future time. They, they, they struggled to understand exactly how it was going to come together, but they, they knew that they were writing about a future glory and a future king. And then the final point, seventh point, is God's new work for Israel will include the nations. God was saying to the prophets, Hey, nations, don't think your gods are greater than I am just because I, I let you overcome my people for I am God over all the earth. And what God said a lot in Ezekiel is, uh, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I'm going to be judging my people, but, but don't, don't get uh, too proud of that nations because its judgment is coming to you as well. Israel should have been a light and a blessing to the nations, but where Israel fails, God will act. Where Israel fails, God will act. The suffering servant that Isaiah writes about, sometimes sounds like he's talking about Israel, and other times it sounds like he's talking about a Savior who delivers Israel. And they they really point to Jesus who fulfills Israel's calling to bless the nations. He saves God's people through his suffering and brings justice to the nations. So in Isaiah 42, I will give you as a covenant, you suffering servant, to the people a light for the nations and in Isaiah 49 he says it's too light a thing that you should be my people my my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the, the preserved of Israel I will bring you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth see all of God's judgments were accomplishing salvation and his word will surely be fulfilled not fulfilled after the exile The Old Testament prophets saw the ultimate fulfillment of God's purpose, the blessing of Abraham through David to include people from every nation, Jews and Gentiles as God's people in God's place, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth under God's rule. And so in Jeremiah 3, verse 17, it talks about this coming new Jerusalem. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather to it to, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. They shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. And Zechariah 2, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Right now, we who have faith in Christ and are already experiencing God's new work Based on his covenant promise to Abraham and to Israel and to David. Yet, in another sense, we're still in exile. Already we have the blessings of Abraham and David in, in being saved through Christ, but, but not yet do we have it in full. We still sin, we still get sick. We're not in uh, a perfect world. We're still waiting for the full full, uh, fulfillment of what God promised. The Old Testament closes with Malachi saying that the Lord's coming will be announced by an Elijah like messenger. Will his people receive him or will God strike the land with a curse? So when you get to the end of the Old Testament, at least in our English Bibles, Malachi 3 and, and Malachi 4 talks about that and it ends on that hard note. A fiery prophet is coming and repent or I'm going to smite the lamb of the curse. So, good news. God's people are still sinful. God's place is not glorious. God's king has not come at the end of the Old Testament. Where is God's blessing to Israel and all nations? After the darkness, light is coming. It's really great to live in times of the fulfillment of the gospel. God will fulfill all he has promised, whether for judgment or salvation. Blessing. Have you connected with God's story? Have you trusted in the Messiah Jesus? That's where all this is leading. And he guarantees that you will be forgiven of your sins. He guarantees you'll have life. And he guarantees you, you'll you live in a new heavens and a new earth. And he guarantees that he dwells with us now in a, in a very real way through his Holy Spirit. So we have a lot to be grateful for. We're going to pray, and then we're going to receive the offering. And then after that, we'll have also time for, um, for prayer for any who need it. Let's pray. Father, we have such a privileged vantage point having seen how your word, how the story is, in our time, with the sending of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that what your people, your original covenant people, could not do, not because they're any worse than we are, but because mere people who are fallen cannot accomplish the salvation that you promise. Father, you gave them great revelation of yourself, of your plans, of your purposes. You gave them what they needed to learn about how you forgive sin and how you cleanse and how to live as a redeemed people. You delivered them again and again. You used discipline to teach them, and and yet, Father, the, the fullness of the time had not yet come. And so we thank you, Father, that Jesus does perfectly fulfill your promises and your purposes He took the judgment that we deserve. He took the judgment of our sinfulness upon himself and conquered it. And in his resurrection, we have new life. Father, I pray that anyone here today who doesn't yet know the Messiah, Jesus, that way the Christ, would truly put their hope and faith in him. Because your story... Father, is sure and certain because of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you give us life in Him. Thank you for the richest blessings of the promises that we have, that we inherit. Jews and Gentiles putting their faith in Christ, belonging to Him as His people. Not yet fully in your place, but with your people as your church, under the rule of your word and your spirit and that good news going out to the nations. And Father, uh, we pray for the offering, the giving of our resources to, to your work. Thank you for the faithfulness of your people to give to your work uh, with their time and with their finances. Would you take it, take these gifts and multiply them for spreading the gospel, for building up your church, for serving your people and serving the people of the community and the nations. Thank you, Father, for your unspeakably great gift of Christ. May we give to you with joy. In Christ's name, amen.